very warm welcome to the Posterity Podcast with me, Nigel Dugdale. The Posterity Podcast is brought to you by the Limerick Post, working in association with Limerick City Community Radio. And for this episode, I'm delighted to welcome on board Foot Solutions, who are based, of course, at number two, O'Connell Street. Foot Solutions have kindly come on board as a sponsor of the Posterity Podcast. And for those of you who don't know what Foot Solutions do, this is it. Foot Foot Solutions know that no two feet are the same, and that's why their goal is to work with you to understand what's going on with your feet and how it impacts your lifestyle. They help customers of all age groups, and for those who have specific pain to those who present injury or those who are simply looking for comfortable shoes, they have everything that you could possibly need. They use the latest technology to identify any issues that you might have. You can contact Foot Solutions at 061-404-849. You're very welcome to this episode of the Posterity Podcast, and I've been getting great feedback over the last few weeks on some of the interviews, particularly the last one with Fergal Deegan. If you haven't listened to that, I really would advise that you go back and have a listen. He's a fantastic guy, and we had a great chat. Um, in studio this week, I'm joined by a man, and it is this podcast, I'm really happy to say, we have Limerick Pride kicking off, and if you're listening to it after the event, hopefully it's been a wonderful event. But Limerick Pride, of course, is kicking off um, this week, and a whole series of events are being hosted across the city, um, culminating in the Limerick Pride Parade, which, of course, will take place on Saturday. So I'm delighted to be joined in studio by a man who knows all about the background of Limerick Pride and has been on the scene, so to speak, for a long, long time. But he's not just one of Limerick's favourite gays. He's also a retailer. He's a um, he's a man about town. And we'll get into this in a little while. He's a man who treaded the boards on stage for many years. And I only, hold re- I only heard recently that... Uh, quite well-respected back in his day. I haven't seen him on stage in many years, but um, we might have a look at that. Dan Lawless, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Nigel. Dan, um, we've known each other a long time, and I mean, I've always been fascinated by you. You've been a trader in the city centre, very well-known, running a beautiful shop there on Roaches Street. Tell me a little bit about your upbringing in Limerick. Where'd you grow up? Grew up in Carberry, um, oddly enough, born in a nursing home on Raybrook Avenue in the Irish Estates, and we lived in Raybrook Avenue. The nursing home just happened to be there, so I don't know how my you mother... You were born in a nursing home? Yeah, I don't know how my mother got there. She probably walked down the road. I don't know. So, yeah, born there and reared there, and then I bought a lovely little cottage on Carberry Road, which I painted pink. Why would I paint it any other colour? So I was there for a good few years, and then I met Clive about thirty years ago now, thirty-one years ago. That's 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 your partner. You've been yeah. So it's thirty-one years. Yeah, we're thirty-one years this year. Yeah. Let's go back to your family because I mean, your dad, um, am I right? A boatman, sailor, man who went around the world. Mm, Yeah. Um, And you've you've siblings as well who are very marine orientated. Where did that come from? I suppose, Nigel. I'll just backtrack even to that from that question for a second. Is it's probably safe to say that we're not a quiet family, <laughs> if you know what I'm saying. Yeah. So uh, you know, as you mentioned, I was on stage, others in flower clubs, and lots of my family loved to sail. And my dad, would I say, he half reared us on the river in the west of Ireland, up on Loch Derg. So life was very much about boats. At one stage, my mother said to my father. Paddy Lawless, you have a boat for every day of the week and there isn't a hoover in the house that works. And so, yes, 
outdoor life, nature, in places that maybe not everybody went to, more remote places, isolated places on the lake or the river or the, or the coast. So uh, it's not surprising that some of the brothers are into boats and two of them this year are going sail- sailing solo around the world, you know. Two of them? Yeah, two. One wouldn't be enough. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the thing about the, the, the you, you were saying, it's almost as if you were ahead of your time from the perspective of that you hear about all this adventurism and people getting out into the great outdoors, but that was happening with you from day dot. My dad had a knack of finding places that were off the beaten track that maybe other boat people didn't go to back then. Now they're probably more popular places. You know, like we used to go to the Blasket Islands. He'd a curric in Ballyferret with a house there. And like we used to go to the Blasket Islands every year for a week and there was nobody there, just the lawlesses and a tent and a gas stove and uh, pure freedom. I, I mean, incredible freedom and introduction to nature, not just water. And then uh, Nancy, my mother, on the other hand, loved nature, most definitely passionate about it, as within reason many people are, but uh, the the flora and the fauna and the flowers and the foliages were very much her thing as well. So we got it from two sides in two different ways, is what I would say, yeah. And what did your parents do professionally? I mean, your, your, what was your dad's profession as such, and then your mum? My dad started off life as a cabinet maker and then he trained as a cabinet maker in Rocha Street as a young fellow. Back then I think he started work at 14 or something like that and started smoking at 14 as well. But anyway, um, then he and his brother set up furniture business, Lawless Brothers. And that went for, oh God, years. Uh, they had a factory down the Cork and Ree. And I think they had up on 40 or 45 guys working there. It closed in the 70s and Dad went out in his own then. And then in his words, we were reared. So he said to my mother one night, Nance, I want to take you for a drink. I have something to ask you. And she said, you can take me to a Driscoll's, but the answer is yes. I know you want to sail around the world. And so that was very loosely his career. And then... Uh, f- uh, 40 years ago this year actually Nancy opened the flower shop in Bedford Row so that was there for 18 or 20 years and then we've been in Roger Street since the millennium yeah what were your early memories of Limerick City because you know we all are now talking about the Limerick of the future and you're a trader in the city centre that's experienced ups and downs And but when you were sort of a little boy in the short pants and sort of experiencing Limerick tell me about your memories I some people find this odd. I loved Limerick from get-go, from day one. And one day a teacher of mine said to me, I don't understand why you love Limerick so much. And she started pointing to areas that need to be, you know, made more upbeat or interesting, etc., etc. And then another lady uh, I knew said, uh, once I got a green card for the States and I went and I came back anyway, and this woman said to me, well, she said, you sure are one person that should never leave Limerick. And so I have always liked it and been passionate about it. I've also been very happy here. I suppose that's another huge aspect. If I wasn't, I probably wouldn't be here, if you know what I mean. So have I carved out a good life for myself? Has life been good to me? The people I've met along, along the way in life has also been very important. Yeah. 
And you know, when you were growing up and you were in, by the way, what school did you go to? I went to, my mother wanted us all to go to St. Philomena's an FCJ school on the South Circular Road attached to Laurel Hill. So you go, went there for three or four years and you had lovely little short pants and black shoes and grey blazers and a little peak cap and all that sort of thing. And that then graduated onto the Crescent in O'Connell Street, uh, the Jesuits, and that was a junior school. And then when it came to from sixth class to first year, the Jays, as we'll call the Jesuits, opened the Crescent Comprehensive in Dura Doyle. So we were the first lot of first years into the Crescent in Dura really? Doyle. So yeah, 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 oh, yeah. Okay. yeah. So I am an elder now, Nigel, yes. <laughs> and a Jesuit boy as well at that. Um, Dan, did you ever, when you were when you were growing up, what aspirations did you have? Was there was there a career sort of a mindset for you as to where you thought you might go or did things just fall into place? What were your thoughts? Uh, there's an aspect of my life that fell into place, but when I was in school, when I was in junior school, I just loved the stage. I loved it, Absolutely. And in secondary school, I loved it. And I was also in the college players as a youngster because Betty Lawless, my aunt, was in the college players and she used to bring me along and I got the junior parts and all that sort of thing. And I was thinking about this the other day because I said, Nigel asked me this question. And what came to mind was, uh, I wouldn't have said I was a grade A student at school. I liked school, actually, but I wouldn't say I was a grade A student. But I could learn the lead role uh, one act of a play with the lead role in a night, no problem. If you asked me to learn a sonnet in a night, I don't think I could. Um, so I say stage was very much, um, I loved it. Was it something you considered? Because I heard, and it was funny, because I always knew you performed, but yeah. I thought someone had said to me the other day that, you know, there might have been a moment where Dan Lawless could have stepped forward and been one of Limerick's first professionals that headed off. Uh, it was mooted and it was mentioned, and uh, life took different courses, I suppose. Uh, someone said to me, there's no point being a big fish in a small town in terms of your acting, you know, bugger off to London and prove yourself over there. But that didn't happen. But I have no regrets about that. I was very happy with the time I spent on stage here. I loved it passionately. Absolutely, yes. And is there a reason, Dan? Because, I mean, I'm back uh, 12 years and I've been doing stuff for donkey's years uh, on and off, depart apart from the period I was away. But you haven't been on stage in many years. And I know that you've had other things in life. But when you were younger, was the reason you stepped away from it? Um, that I've been asked many times because people have often said to me, Dan, will you come back and do a play? And years ago, Matt Kelly and myself asked Eileen Egan, would she take a part in a play that we were uh, producing? And Eileen, uh, my father calls to call her Lady Bracknell, uh, you know, she's beautiful tones of speech. And she said, no, thank you. And I said, why? And she said, someday you will understand. And I thought that's a very vague answer. But now I do understand it. I think, Nigel, I was so happily and wonderfully engrossed in theatre and from acting, producing, directing, fundraising, you name it, stuck in there. And at the same time, I, I, I'll come back to your, your question in a moment. Then I got involved in various other things like Island Theatre Company, the Gay Switchboard, AIDS Alliance. And at one stage I'm going, Lawless, if you don't slow down, something will slow you down. So I then pulled back probably, and this has nothing to do with Clive, but 
around the time I met Clive was when I actually stopped an awful lot of my activities. I'm going, you need a life of your own, Lawless. Live a little, learn as well as, you know, to say no. Love. Love, yeah, absolutely. So then I didn't, it wasn't a conscious decision, oh, I'm not going on stage anymore. It just ground down subconsciously, but I'm sure there was conscious in there somewhere. And I met Clive, and then I remember one day Breed Finn saying to me, God, you've become a real rural hermit, haven't you? We don't see you anymore. So you haven't been in a Limerick pub in six months or more. And I'm going, oh dear, is it that obvious? And so, you know, Margaret Hawk and a few others have said to me over the years, would you come back on stage law, you know? And it's not that I wouldn't, but actually life has taken a different course now. But the memories I have of... My time on stage, absolutely passionate and really happy times. I mean, we were all so young and energy is a huge, uh, you know, we could rehearse six, seven nights a week, make sets on Sundays, go fundraising during the day. You, and I suppose as well, you know, you would have been able to have pints afterwards as well. It was very uh, city Nigel, We were never shy of <laughs> a pint are a party of any day of the week or any night of the week. Well known for that. Yeah, yeah, But it's absolutely. sad, you know, because I mean, I'm, uh, as people will know, I'm still involved in a few bits and, and I know that the days of being able to, because people live outside the city and because there's all these rules and regulations now, rightfully, in terms of drink driving, but there would have been times when Sicilian Musical Society, the minute the interval came, half the cast would be inside and south, yeah, knocking yeah, three yeah. pints in and back on stage. You can't do that now because no, no, no. audiences expect professionalism yeah. and it has changed. Um, but coming back to that, I was always um, fascinated by the Limerick City and how many theatres we had and how many really interesting spaces. I never got to see mm. the Savoy. Um, I did experience the Crescent Hall. Mm. Um, now you have the lime tree, the bell table. Talk to me about what that cultural vibe, there, was there an edginess to that Limerick um, culture scene back then? I suppose, uh, like my first onstage experience outside of uh, plays in Philomena's and the Crescent Comprehensive was in what was then the Coliseum, which then became the bell table. And uh, I was part in Stephen, Stephen D, I think. But even if I wasn't in the place, I used to go up setting the programs. And uh, by the end of the week, I knew all the lines. I used to go to all the rehearsals as well. And I knew everybody's lines. I could be saying them to myself silently in my head. I mean, quite wonderfully artistically wacky. But um, when uh, I remember somebody saying to me um, about my Auntie Betty, that she was a great actress and all of that. And this person said, you know, when we were growing up, there wasn't a lot. So she said groups like the college players actually were very important to their cultural activity and exposure to theatre and getting out to see plays. Um, so I just loved all that. I had a field day there, like, you know, the kid with all the adults on stage having fun with theatre. So that was just a right buzz. Then the bell table came. And Biddy Dukes, bless her, you know, to me, she did a brilliant job. Ema McNamara and all the others that came after, it's, it's been a brilliant place. And it then, it wasn't just the well table, like I was young then, I mean, I was living in a bedsit across the road, so it's very handy. Um, it just brought a different vibrancy, followed by the concert hall, of course, but 
But the city at that time, you were saying you were living in a bed sit across the road. And yeah. I know, um, you know, I spoke recently to someone who was saying, you know, John Logan was living in a bed sit. There were other people living in a bed sit. He was in a posh bed sit. He now. was, okay, mm-hmm. yeah. But what I mean is that, was there maybe, was there a time when the city centre was more lived in in that regard and therefore it added to that vibrancy? Did it feel more lived in than it does now? Um, to me, it never felt inactive is what I is what the way I'd answer it to you because I always was active within it so it never felt like a dead city quite the opposite uh, to me I suppose if you're not doing anything you're going to be a lonely soul if yeah. you're engaged yeah yeah we were just 24 7 and day. loving it yeah so it was very energetic and very active for me personally is what I would say yeah definitely what was your first job I Worked in my dad's factory on the dock road as a kid in the furniture mm-hmm. from my summer holidays. And then I got a job in a bar in Ballyferreter and I worked there for four or five summers, which was great. So you got three months in Ballyferreter. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's great. And what about when you finished school then in the Crescent? You graduated, I presume you did leaving search, you yeah. got to that point. Um, was there a, was there talk of college? Did you or, or what was the next step for you? I did two years in what was then called the Brendan Smith Theatre Academy in Dublin, in Georgia Street, South Great Georgia Street. And that was all there was to do uh, theatre college-wise at actor. the time, yeah. yeah. And then I got a job in Napoleon Castle as an entertainer for two years. And that brought me back to Limerick and that really regrounded me here. That's the way that sort of loop went. So it's really interesting. So you actually went, you did put the wings out and you said, right, yeah. I'm going to give this a shot. But your first professional gig in performance sent you back yeah, home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that yeah. probably put, a, put the, the end of that in terms of ambition to go elsewhere again, did it? Were you a homebird? Would I be a home bird? I couldn't wait to get out of home. No disrespect to my parents. Um, so to that end, uh, yes, in terms of family, I would say yes. Yeah, yeah. But place, you know, did, was Limerick important to you? Oh, hugely. Did, I loved yeah. it. I still yeah. do. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So Pride Week, and I'm fascinated by this. Uh, you know, I've been reading a little bit about this recently. And when was the moment that you would have known that you were gay as such. But, you know, was there a real... I mean, it mightn't have been a term as such when you were coming I out. I love this thought and this notion, and it's something I've asked myself this, uh, you know, many, many times and many, many years ago. And I've said this to people over the years. Um, I believe I was born gay, number one. And I knew I was gay at a very, very early young age definitely but was the term i mean obviously it wasn't the term gay probably but you do was it just a sense of difference the sense or a sense I of fancied, attraction to us i knew yeah. i fancied fellas that yeah. was it pants often and when that thought becomes a realization in maybe adolescence into you know teenage years and yet it's not really the accepted thing what was the limerick of that time like talk to me um, I'll just backtrack for a second. The The knowledge that I was gay was there. And then there is the transition period. Well, for me, I should say that was the transition period where, okay, you know you are. Now you've got to step out and tell, you know, you were reared, educated, society, school, etc. 
you are heterosexual and then you've got to come and tell the world, actually, I'm a homosexual. So that transition then was, I don't mean it wasn't comfortable, but you had to think it out long and hard. So then I came out and like, to put it bluntly, when I did, the closet doors flung open and yeah. I couldn't scream loud enough. And <laughs> but what year was that? I just want to get this. Oh, in. I would have been started 20 or there, 2021, 22. And some people said to me, oh, we kind of wondered, but we knew you were artistic, so we thought it was that. And then they said to me, why didn't you tell us sooner? And I'm kind of going, well, you know, I had to settle with this with myself. And one day I went, uh, my mother came home from work and she must have known my head was mithered and uh, she was cooking tea and I was sitting down at the kitchen table and my dad was inside watching the telly and she said, I have something to ask you. I said, what? Are you gay? I said, yes, I am. She said, that's great. I just wanted to know. And it, she took the weight off my shoulders is what I would say. And she, my dad says, why didn't you tell me? He said, sure, when I was young, loads of fellas fancied me. I just didn't fancy them. And uh, so in many ways, uh, I had good family support and that's huge. And I've known many people who didn't have that. And, and that's it what I mean. I mean probably at the time, you know, it wasn't necessarily the easiest thing to do. And I mean, there's people have said to me, sure, she was the only gay in the village at the time. You probably weren't. But tell me about the, the sort of um, <laughs> the city scene as such, because uh, I mean, you wouldn't have had gay bars with pride flags sticking out of them. Somebody once said to me, Dan, you're the first gay of Limerick. I said, no, I'm not. I've been gays in Limerick for a century and millennia. But maybe I just came out a little louder and, you know, politically I was very strong-minded as well. Scene-wise, back to your question, um, there wasn't a lot happening. Uh, the White House bar in O'Connell Street was known as the gay bar. And certainly a lot of the gay community, the artistic community, all went there. Uh, different to what it later became in the time of the bell table, then it was very, you know, trendy uh, bar to be in, whereas when we went there years ago, it was a quiet place. You'd meet poets, you'd meet Jim Kemi, Patsy Harold, and uh, gay men and occasionally gay women. So it was kind of my little centre of refuge on a Friday evening after work. I'd go up and have a few pints and out of it's given to be there. Time for you to go home now. And I'm going, I love, I'll have another pint and a bag of peanuts, please. And But it was, I, I liked that bar from day one. Um, but you obviously had a bravery and you, you were helped with the fact that your, your family were somewhat windswept and interesting, I mm. suppose, and, and open to this. And I mean, but many others maybe were not as lucky as you. So did you ever experience that sort of closeted fear that went on? We, when I say we, Clive, his mother and my mother and myself were in Queens with other friends one night in Ellen Street. And there was a lovely guy who I still know, we still know, and he was at the bar and he started talking to my mother and I could see him crying and I'm going, hmm. I left them alone. Anyway, he told her, you know, he said, Dan and Clive are really lucky with the parents they have. And he told my mother that if he told his parents that he was gay, that he'd be thrown out of the house. So that was going on while Clive and I had a lot of support there. You know, so yes, I did see a lot of that, Nigel. And, Absolutely. And, when, and when did you meet Clive for the first time and where? I met him in the White House. White House seems to come up a lot, doesn't it? Uh, Clive was coming from his Uncle George's funeral in England and himself and his two sisters sat into a taxi in Shannon to go to Maru and they stopped off for a few pints and they said to the taxi man, where should we go? And because they were thinking of the pink elephant or wherever, you know. And he said, well, don't go to the White House. It's full of gays. So when Clive was getting out of the car, he said to the taxi man, where did you say not to go? 
So <laughs> Clive next Saturday night was in the White House and Island Theatre Company were doing uh, the Norwegian play about a Munson um, in the bell table at the time. So I went down after the show and there was Clive in the corner beaten into his denims, check shirt and a, a tweed uh, cap. And that was it. And the we met and that's the strange thing was that within the first 24 hours of meeting, and it's very, this is very unusual, uh, we both said we were each other's for life, which is a very strange uh, thing and commitment to make. And But don't ask me how that strength of... Uh, relationship, relationship yeah. came out. Um, that would so that would have been when, like, what year? It was thirty one years ago on the twenty eighth of October. So eighty no, where are we? Ninety one, ninety two, yeah, ninety two, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so you meet Clive, and I mean, I'm I'm just interested. When I moved from Limerick, and and listeners might know that I went to Dublin and I studied drama, and I was very very lucky because at the end of my first year in college, I had a couple of gay guys in my class that and I didn't know for a minute that I might be gay. And I was given this baptism of fire in the George, this purple cladded beautiful okay. venue. Uh, um, you know, <coughs> alternative Miss Ireland had kicked off and then I started to see the front lounge happen and Panty Bliss and mm. Shirley Temple Bar. So I was really lucky because I was... I came out into a world where venues were all over it the place. It was very different, Manchester, yeah. Queerest <coughs> Folk came out, yeah, the, the, yeah. that Russell T. Davies show. You were very lucky as that guy who met met Clive so early and, and mm. found yourself a relationship. But I'm trying to think about what it might have been like for guys in Limerick who either they came out but decided to stay here or maybe were not able to come out. There wasn't that sort of network of places. There was It was no, very there limited. No. There wasn't the internet. It was very limited. No internet, uh, no grinder, no gaydar, no gay bars, as you said. Like, uh, your Dublin scene was very different. Uh, that world was very different. Um, when I was, uh, I'm, I'm going back to pre-meeting Clive now and uh, a very good friend of mine who I would think I was about 25 and he might have been 21 or 22. He was a gay man and he ended his life, which really devastated me, I have to say. So, and I was very upset by it, of course, and you're young and you're, you're, you're learning uh, very hard lessons in life. So <clears throat> one day I met the late Albert Higgins, actually, in O'Connell Street, who I was very friendly with. And I said, Albert, we've got to try and do something about this, because that's just so sad. So uh, so he said, we'll go and talk to John Logan, and Paul McCormick came along as well. So the four of us went to John Logan's posh bedsit in Perry Square. And John Logan gave us um, fruitcake with butter and bowls of tea. I'd never had a bowl of tea in my life, so it was a fierce posh. And he had the fire lighting in his lovely Georgian apartment and all of that. And the four of us just sat down and we loosely discussed setting up a gay switchboard to try and help counteract that isolation and loneliness because it certainly was there. So um, we went to the family planning clinic and they gave us a telephone and a room on a Wednesday night and we were doing things like putting up stickers like Limerick Gay Switchboard 310101 Wednesday 79 or whatever. <clears throat> so that was quite interesting. And it took off. And the amount of calls we got increased. And the radius the callers came from increased. And you spoke to a lot of men in particular, some women, 
and parents as well who just wanted to talk. A lot of guys and women feeling very isolated, especially in rural Ireland and maybe sports people or in agriculture or in any workplace in town. It wasn't that fashionable to be gay. And so that took off and then it became the Limerick Gay and Lesbian Switchboard and it developed from there. And and what sort of advice would you have been given? I mean, if you got somebody ringing from Carcon Lish, who, you know, was a farmer living on his own, but had this thing happening in his little soul that he needed to express, what advice were you able to give at the time? The first thing we did was listen. That was actually the key thing. And a lot of people wanted information as well, you know, is there somewhere you can go? Is there somewhere you can meet people, etc.? We also did training with the similar organization in Cork. So they really gave us a good sense of focus, which was great because then you were a bit more grounded. It wasn't, I don't mean loose, but it was just good training and it was very good training, actually. Um, so meeting places, there weren't a lot of meeting places like uh, the White House, you know, very quiet pub for a lot of gay people to walk into it might not have been everybody's scene or cup of tea and like cruising or meeting a gay guy tended to be on the dark road going for a stroll with similar guys and that was about as good as it got. So it was quite clandestine whereas you know Dublin had things like the, the Hirschfield Centre things like that they yeah. weren't necessarily here. You know like not. when I got to the Hirschfield Centre I'm kind of going hmm yeah, this is different. For, for listeners who maybe might know what the Hirschfeld Centre was, just explain a little bit about that. Um, David Norris and co. and others set it up. So it was a meeting place. I mean, when I got to it, like it was like a, a wannabe nightclub, I suppose. But it was basically, but it was a venue. You could go there. You could be yourself. You could dance. You could have a beer. You could just be with a group of people. You could almost have a party, for uh, want of a better word. And... Uh, talking of, uh, I nearly said Norris, Senator David Norris, um, who I just have great time for. But my first gay pride actually was in Dublin and it was in Merrion Square. I don't know, was it the first pride or not? But a few of us went to Dublin and the pride event took place in Merrion Square. It wasn't a march like you are parade like you get now. And sure, we were all young, skinny old yokes, you know, up to Dublin for the weekend um, looking for a shag and a few pints of net and us that went with it and we had great fun and David Norris was sitting on his deck chair and there was like a little mound like a little mini drumlin in the park and he put his deck chair up there and he had a lovely uh, a boater hat and a striped jacket and you know uh, he just looked the, the business and we were all we didn't dare speak to him you know but the whole uh, that was my first pride I've done prides in New York and elsewhere and Limerick of course um, and even though you had come out and you were able to be yourself and people accepted you, and in fact, that's probably why people accepted you because they were probably very juiced to him. He's done what he's done. But did you ever feel um, the grass is greener, you know, that, that maybe I need to get out of this town if I'm really going to have with Clive, you know? Um, I, well, Clive is born in England. His mother's from Limerick. His dad was English. And when I met him, I said, it's you I want to be with. So do you want to live in England or where do you want to live? So he said, no, I, I do like England, but I want to live in Ireland. So that was it. Yeah. And there wasn't an attraction to go to a bigger city like the Dublin or the, even we, the Cork, where, where well, maybe there was a bit more. You know, we went to San Francisco and said, if ever we were moving, that's where we'd go. Yeah. To the whole island. Did you go? Oh, we've been. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah but never, yeah. never, never to live. Not to live. No, no, yeah. no, no. But we both loved it. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about mid-80s or early 80s to when 
AIDS, HIV, but AIDS as it was known, you know, when did you first come across that concept of something dark was hitting? Here we are in the Limerick Community Radio. Uh, I used to work also for Jan the Men in Radio Limney, the pirate radio station. And uh, with Seamus O'Connor and John and Walter and all that crew, it was great. I loved it. It was a brilliant time, actually. But John Frawley used to read the news from the Cork Examiner and various other newspapers. And on the back page of the Cork Examiner, he read this thing, uh, gay, gay plague to, uh, to kill gays. And I'm going, oh, God. So that was my first actual hearing of HIV and AIDS. Back to that time in, say, my life and uh, so many people's lives, it was, I would say fear was really the thing because... Because initially it was, it was being called a gay plague, then it was being called a gay cancer, and then it was being blamed on things like amyl nitrate. So there was really, it, it was kind of a bit like COVID in a sense, because it was this thing was kicking in. You didn't know how it was going to affect you if you got it, how yes, you were getting it, it was, where you were going to get it. Uh, harder even than COVID in a way, insofar as because it was the gay plague, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And then we knew of people who were dying and that died. And the fear was, would you get it? And if you did, and I remember a guy phoning me one day, Danny said, I think I'm positive. And I'm going, why? And I can't remember what reason he said. So there was an STI clinic in Dora Doyle and he was afraid to go. So he said, will you come with me? I said, I will. So we went to a doctor first to a GP and then we went out there. But he, he was, he was HIV negative, but he was just convinced. So afraid and the fear of possibly finding out that he was HIV positive, yeah. Who was the first person you met? Well, it's not that I don't want a name, but I mean, when you, like, what, around what time, what year would you have maybe realised that it was here for real? Uh, oh, I would have met people very early on uh, and friends and associates, I suppose, as well, or people that I would know, but not as well as friends. So yeah, plenty of people I knew were HIV positive very early on. And the, I suppose, you know, we saw recently with the It's a Sin um, programme, I don't know if you mm, saw, but it was, and so beautifully produced. But what struck me, and I didn't realise at the time, was that these people, once it was known that they had it, were in some senses locked away in hospital wards on their own, mm. um, food shoved through holes, they weren't allowed to meet anyone, and they were left to basically fester and die, weren't they? That's what that documentary, that programme showed. Uh, the people who I knew didn't die in that circumstance, okay. but they died. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, many, for many, it was a swift death. And, you know, whether you were rich or poor, it didn't matter. Uh, it was what it was. Did it frighten you big time? Uh, I don't think there was a gay man at that time that it didn't frighten. Absolutely, Yes. And, you know, I remember being in Dublin and, and sort of seeing all these people who probably were my age now, mm. you know, but, but the age that I am today, sitting at a bar in the George or in the front lounge, and I saw them as a 19-year-old, you know, little twinkie boy. Oh, they're past it. They're all... And it was watching It's a Sin and talking to a few friends from London who I knew were HIV positive themselves, but I'd never spoken because I was too nervous to ask them. It was a personal thing in my view. But... I what struck me about that show was the numbers of people who even though they survived 
went through a trauma that was remarkable, really. You know, mm. they were people who had gone through fear themselves. They had luckily, luckily escaped it, but probably saw lots and lots of beautiful young people taken from them. Absolutely. And God, I dismissed I, that. I you lost know? so many friends. And Did you? Yeah. What's interesting is that a lot of the families didn't acknowledge that their sons died of HIV and AIDS. Mm. So that was all covered up, which is really sad. When did it start to change a little bit? I mean, you know, and we're coming, it's sort of like you're getting through that. That went into the 90s, I presume. You met Clive in 91. Mm. So that was very much around a time when when AIDS was had kicked in. Mm. Am I right? Mm. You know, when did um, it start to feel there's there's hope here? Uh, I suppose, uh, I'll just backtrack for a second. Uh, along with uh, being involved in the switchboard, that subsequently led another group of us to setting up the Limerick AIDS Alliance. Yes. So then we had to go off and train in all of that. And there was very little support and structure at the time. I mean, I think I remember meeting Brendan Howland in Catherine Street trying to negotiate the first salary for Limerick AIDS Alliance to get an administrator in. Um, you know, doing things like giving a talk in school at that stage was totally out of the question. Mm. I don't think you'd have been wanted in the front doors. Whereas all of that slowly changed and schools were delighted to have people come in and tell their students about HIV and AIDS and how to be aware of it, etc., etc. What year did you set that the, the, the AIDS lines up? Oh dear, I would say mid-80s, I imagine. Okay. I, that's from memory, but we did our first collection outside Todd's, now BT's. Was it for Irish AIDS Day or World AIDS Day? I can't remember what it was, but we got T-shirts made. We got a caravan outside the flower shop and Betty Lawless and Sheila Doherty uh, did the collecting and the counting of the money. And we were all outside collecting. So fair play, uh, Jim Kemi came along, so we had to find the biggest T-shirt we could get. Uh, for him to wear and he carried the bucket with us for a few hours to support us outside Todd's and we got a very mixed reaction some like extremely negative and some amazingly positive so uh, you know it was yeah it was just an interesting experience looking back now and and when you say you trained you know in the AIDS like what sort of again coming back I mean people were ringing in I mean, I can't, was it a walk-in centre as well? No, not then, it, no. It was, it it was, was phone, a phone, phone, yeah. And I mean, it must have been, some of the calls you must have been getting were from people who were terrified. People who were terrified, people who had been living overseas, who were positive, who came home, people who were nervous, who wanted information, people who wanted information about clinics to get tested, all of that, yeah. The, you know, now... Oh, thankfully, HIV treatable. Um, hmm. What time or what time in the timeline there did, 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 did something come about medically that might be able to at least stop it being a deathly disease? Um, I suppose uh, I, I know people who went on medicines and are on medicines. Uh, to give you a time frame or a date mm. on that, I'm not sure about that. It's quite a while ago. We did do collectively the various AIDS alliances around the country, north and south, the Irish Quill Tour in 1991. And that was very effective. It was AIDS memorial quilts that were made by individuals or groups uh, to commemorate their loved ones. Families would create a panel yeah, that would be stitched Our colleagues, our yeah. a lover or partner, whatever. 
And it was an exhibition. The Limerick one was on in the then new City Hall Exhibition Centre. And it really was a huge awareness project. It was just, they came on busloads from all over Munster. It was quite amazing, yeah. So I want to have a think about, you know, the Limerick as it as it evolved from being, you know, there's people who've described it to me in the past and this podcast has been, it was a small country town. You know, we weren't, you know, we were with Galway and the West of Ireland. Mm. Um, it was never going to be this urban mecca for the homosexual community, no, you know? No. But did it start to, did, did a scene start to develop that became a bit more modern or, you know, I remember popping back. The one thing I did experience about Limerick when I'd come away, come back home, you know, from being in college and then in London, the gay bar kept changing. <laughs> it did. Um, one time I bought a property anyway and I had to take out life assurance. So uh, they wanted me to do a medical. So I'm going, okay. So I went up to this doctor and he obviously, I think he knew my parents and he said, I must go and talk to my secretary. And he turned a letter towards me as he walked out of the room and it was from the insurance company and written in red writing on the printed letter with the buyer was confidentially Dr. So-and-so, Mr. Lawless is a known homosexual. And I'm going, oh dear, you know the next four letter word I could say. But anyway, I came home because the back then my life assurance was doubled, which is not happening now. So I came home and I was livid. And my mother said, it's like this now, Dan. Bar putting a placard on your back and walking up and down a con street. Everyone in Limerick knows you're gay. And I'm going, okay, fair enough. So, but was there a big scene? Was there a strong scene? Uh, a large group of people, large numbers of people, not really. It tended to be small groups. My brother Jim is also gay. He had his, what I call, circular friends, uh, just ever so slightly older than me. We had our own crew, and there were lots of pockets of social aspects. Social life tended to be, you go to somebody's house, flat or apartment or whatever, and have a beer, and it was just good fun. But so it, it was, was a social circle as opposed to a, um, you know, an actual physical centre that you would no, attend. It was very social. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. But it was good, though. We enjoyed it. We had fun, you know, yeah. And for listeners, you know, I mean, I'm not past it age-wise. I'm getting there, mid-age. But my experience for the first time of the George, you know, and once I opened the door and went in and it took me and I knew I was at home and had found my tribe... The George Street of the time, it was still a place where when you went to the George, I probably would have doubled up and down five or six times to make sure that no one that I knew who I didn't want to know was watching me or that it was safe to do so. Yeah. So, you know, and I'm, you know, I'm still young. So this is, the world has changed radically. And the reason I say that is, you know, we were at, I was at the launch of Pride recently and this podcast is to celebrate Pride in a sense. And the world has radically changed, you know, with internet, with Gaydar, mm. with, with Grindr, all those apps that you can now meet people, internet dating, and the openness, it's everywhere. Kids' books are now being written by authors where, you know, gay characters yeah. are the main yeah. theme. So they are very, very lucky in a sense, and I hope that listeners to this would, would recognize that, you know, they are, whilst there's still huge issues with coming out and there's still bullying that exists, they are very lucky to be in a world where they're accepted and know mm. that it exists. Absolutely. Um, uh, a friend of ours said to me one day, um, her, said she, uh, gay bars was what was being discussed. And she said, what's with gay bars? Like, uh, you know, I want to go, she's very comfortable with gay people, as is her husband. And 
said, you know, we'd like to go out for a drink with gay people as we, as they do. But she said, I just don't get this gay bar thing. Why does it have to be gay bar? I said, this is my opinion now, and I'm not speaking for everybody, but sometimes a gay bar for especially a younger person who's coming out who maybe hasn't quite told the mum, dad, the family, brothers, sisters, schoolmates, college mates, workmates or whatever, a gay bar gives somebody a safe place. Number one, where they can be themselves, I believe, and where they're not going to feel intimidated. I often used to describe it as a theatre because everyone that you went into week in, week out, there was the character over there. There was the young, shy guy who tended to stand in the same place with his straw, but ended up, you know, always been the bowled one on the dance floor. Everyone had their own character. When you went in, it was like finding home, really, for me. It just, it was, and it was a safe place, is what I would say. So for me, there is, there always has been, and I believe there will be a place for gay bars, yeah. Mm. Um, I'm thinking now about Pride and, you know, the whole the whole movement that's, you know, all these people who are going down Connell Street. When was the first time, do you remember, that a Pride group got together in Limerick City and... I think James Hannigan, Tom Burns and a few others, I can't remember who else, did the first gay Pride in Limerick. I think there was about 13 or something in it. Um, I don't know the year of that, but I mean, light years ago... Uh, whereas now it's really a festive fun thing and I tend to usually cycle the Messenger Boys bike up O'Connell Street Avenue or O'Connell Street or whatever street it will be this year but filled with loads of flowers and flags and uh, you know it's poles apart from where we were I'm 62 now so uh, it's poles apart from where we were back then yeah. and does it put up a smile on your face? You know, oh, I love it it's a, it's a buzz and but it's, proud from the perspective, I mean, of, you know, you were involved politically in so many things and, you know, one of the few in the city who was able to stand up and fight your corner and now to see it the way it is now, there's still a lot of work to be done, but it's come remarkably, hasn't it? It has changed hugely and far the better, yes, absolutely. Um, so uh, pride is great because there are still an awful lot of people out there that have to... I don't mean they have to come out. That's a personal decision to come out or not to. But, you know, there are some people who struggle and who still live in isolation of all ages. And I just think, uh, to me, actually, that's what uh, Pride is all about. Yes, it's having fun with your friends and seeing the people on the pavement waving you up the street and all of that. But actually, I just think to let people out there know that it's okay to be gay is huge. I think a lot of people um, would ask the question and I saw this commented on Twitter recently where somebody was saying you know what is the what's the point of of pride when you've got equality and I'm trying to find it here because I made notes and just to give listeners an understanding of why you know equality happened and we'll get back to that because Mm. you got married as well and you know 15 jurisdictions criminalise gender identity or the expression of transgender people, for Mm. instance, using so-called cross-dressing impersonation or disguise laws. Um, There was another one that said 71 countries criminalise consensual relationships with someone of the same sex. 43 countries specifically criminalise consensual relationships between women and 11 countries have the death penalty for consensual same-sex sexual activity. And at a time when politics 
goes in funny directions. Mm. And you saw something happening in, in America recently. There was talk mentioned that they might take away the gay marriage. Yeah. Um, so, you know, just because we in Ireland today and in some Western countries are able to express ourselves and be happy, there are many, many, many others who don't get to That's do the same. That's very true. I remember going to work one morning in my mother's Fiat 127 coming up Patrick Street and uh, we were just running a few minutes late and the news came on and the introductory news item was Senator David Norris has won his case in Europe. And I remember feeling, oh my God, it was just so empowering. It was just wonderful. And uh, we're quite good friends with David now and you know he's done a lot of very good work for us here for fundraising over the years. And he's not so very talented, but um, that was a huge milestone for me. Mm. I never dreamt that I would see a day that I could marry a man. I 1993, never... Dan, we were still illegal. Oh, yeah, I was be... illegal, yeah. Yeah, and the word illegal to me is, is bonkers, but the fact is, you know, it wasn't... It's, Four years before I came out, mm. and so four years before, and I never, and that's what I mean. I never thought about that because I was the young boy going to Dublin, and I, by God, I was going to enjoy myself, and I did, and I got to experience London and cruise ships full of twinks and queens. But I never stopped, and it's only now that I'm looking back and going, I've huge regret in my life about the fact that I didn't treat older people who didn't have it so easy with as much respect. I, well, Clive and I recently featured in a movie um, that's featuring the Galway Film Festival shortly, but it's Where Do All the Old Gays Go? So I'm an elder now. And uh, it was interesting, very interesting, very in-depth. But uh, my great theory in life is it always evolves, it always changes. Would I like to have been born at a different time earlier or later and had life different? No. And, you know... Um, for those youngsters that are coming out and growing up now, look, they're in a different world. It's their cradle. And, you know, uh, people often ask me, what advice would you give or <coughs> what are your thoughts on, you know, life and living life? And I just say to anybody, gay or straight, young or old, it doesn't matter. Just live your life. Live it, live it, live it. Whatever you want to do in this world, whether it's breathe the fresh air, read the book, Come out, whatever you want to do, do it because you walk through here once and just live it and do it and enjoy it. Um, we were talking recently about the whole, um, well, I was remembering because not many people would know this, but I actually married you and Clive on you paper. You did. But um, that was before the marriage referendum, am I right? That did. No, the marriage referendum uh, came out in May and okay. we signed up for it straight away and we picked a date in September, so just a couple of months. Oh, it was after, it so was, okay. It was after, yeah. yeah, yeah. So we went and did the civil thing in St. Camillus because it's a small little room and uh, the city needs to do something about that, but that's another day's work. And we didn't tell anybody that we were doing it because if it only takes 13 people. So then we had a marquee at home and fair play and thank you, uh, you did the ceremony for us at home. And nobody realized that we'd actually done it already and we didn't tell people. So we came out and did a second ceremony. So in the first ceremony in St. Camillus and the woman who married us, our civil partners, she was just wonderful. And the two of us cried the whole way through the whole ceremony. And then we stopped in Peter Classy's Croker's Pub in Maru. We had it arranged. We just had a brown bread, smoked salmon and a cup of coffee. They offered us champagne. We didn't have it. And then we came up to the house and everybody was inside in the marquee. 
And I said to myself, well, if we cried, cried our way through the first one and the celebrant said it's one way or the other, uh, people either laugh their way through it or cry their way through it. And I was saying, okay, we've got the crying over with now. And then we had to say, I do again all over and you acted as the celebrant. And we cried our way through the whole thing twice. And I spoke to one uh, civil celebrant about it uh, at a wedding that we were doing the flowers at and she did a lovely ceremony and I told her my experience, but she said, but look at the emotional journey you've come through mm. to get to where you are. And I'm going, yes, I said, I never thought I could marry a man. I always dreamt I would live with the man for my life. That was always something from early childhood that was there. And it was a wonderful ceremony to be to be part of. And, and you know, I was very honoured. But I'll tell you, in typical Nigel Dugdale fashion, I did it for you. And then someone said, you know what you should do is go off and sign yourself up to get trained up just to do this legally. Mm. It's become a business that's thriving. It's I never did it because I didn't think I could. Yeah. And yet I've proven to you. And I sang songs for you. you and did, I, I, yeah, I was yeah. ahead of my time. I, I'm raging. It was the biggest, the biggest regret. You I, still do it. <laughs> I could, I could, I yeah, could. Yeah, we yeah, could yeah. see it. I could be. But look, um, we're getting towards Pride and people listening to this may have been at the Pride Parade already and they're listening to it in advance. You know, what are your hopes for the future? Because obviously we're starting to look now at, and, and something, you know, I hold my hands up and it's it's another big regret of mine is that never understanding the trans rights issue and maybe parking that outside of my tribe, so to speak, mm. for, for years. And that never fully, it wasn't that I had any issue with it. It was just something I didn't feel that I should be associated. Mm. And reading the history of pride, pride history mm. particularly, it was actually trans people who were at the very heart of that at the very beginning. So I'm just thinking going forward, we still have a lot of work to do, don't we? I think to say we need to be vigilant, yes, we do. We have a lot of work to do and we need to keep doing it. I don't think we can sit back and relax and think the world is going to stay okay. Um, I think uh, the trans community need major support. Uh, in this uh, movie that we did, there were two women, two guys, an older guy and a trans woman. And she was just wonderful and she just gave an amazing interview and she was so passionate about her life. And she said, every day is a pride day for me. Every day I walk out of my house is a pride day. And I'm going, wow, isn't that wonderful to see and to hear and to, to hear her emotion. It was just really lovely and wonderful. But yes, I think my hopes for the future. Uh, one of the things that I've often felt is that uh, where do all the old gays go? I've seen it, and I'm not saying I am correct in this, but as a lot of older men and women age, they are weak and tend to retreat somewhat. Uh, as a given, I think it is, whether you're gay or straight, as you get older, people tend to become less socially active. But uh, The I flower just, withers. <laughs> yeah, but I think that maybe some support structures in the back of my head to do, I don't know, a social structure, walking, I don't know, it's something... Uh, it's really interesting because, uh, you know, I've been reading a bit about the whole um, ageing population thing and um, ageing, I've seen nursing homes, mm. I've seen how we are currently treating older people who sometimes we think they get to a certain age and you know what, we'll put them away at 70 and that's and that's that. Whereas for me, you know, if we are going to be an aging population who are going to live to 90, there's a chance from 60 to 90, we're going to have 30, 25 years of health. Mm. It just happens that we're that bit older and nursing homes aren't the answer. And it, you're right. What must it be like for 
the gay community, for me, when I'm 70 and hope I get to live to 85, but if I'm a dadder than 69-year-old queer whose mind is still working, I don't want to be locked away. I want to be in the middle of something. The... This documentary stroke movie that was made actually was all about uh, that aging process and going into nursing homes and not being able to be queer or to be gay or going back into the closet in your old age. And Clive was quite vocal on it. I don't want to be heterosexualized in a nursing home in Ireland or England or anywhere. And there are gay nursing homes in many parts of Europe and around the world, and there have been for quite some time. And... Uh, so yes, the fear or the feeling and stroke fear is that if you are of a certain age and you go to a nursing home now or in years to come, all that fun and that freedom you have may be taken away from you. Even if you're compassmentous, that would be very hard. And you know, the other side is that we need to start thinking about how we design what we might consider to be retirement homes because they're not just um, magnolia painted walls with uh, a television in the corner. It's actually, we can design communities that work. Yeah, and It works It works elsewhere. Absolutely it does. Yeah. And I want to live in the gay one because yeah, yeah, it could yeah. be so much more fun. Listen, Dan Lottis, you're a person who's done so much. You're a person who's still got so much to give and it's wonderful. And I know that yourself and Clive are still happy. Living where? Remind people where you are because it's such a beautiful uh, We live place. in the middle of nowhere and some people have come out and they say, mm, this is lovely, but I wouldn't live here if you paid me. Uh, Clive's mother, Muriel, his late mother, bless her, gave us the site. And so Seamus Carr designed the house and all of that. And so it's in the Schlieffalem Hills. It's like 600 feet above sea level. You can see as far as Mount Brandon. And, you know, this morning we saw a fox and a buzzard. And, you know, other days you see the hare or the deer. Or uh, Clive loves the, the bird life, the wildlife. So it's... Um, do you miss the urban? Uh, no, actually. And the interesting thing, uh, Clive has had a lot of illness and has had mm. multiple brain surgeries and spinal surgeries and all of that. So going to the pub and the restaurant really isn't a thing for us anymore. So in one sense, we have become insular. That's uh, what I touched on earlier on. Um, now, he likes to kick me out the door and go down for a few pints and get the taxi home or whatever every so often. But actually, outside of working, so I suppose I do have the urban side of life as in I work in Limerick City every day in Roche Street. So, but, so living in that space, the two of us, we've carved out our own little world. You know, we've two large Newfoundland dogs. We love the garden. We grow the veg. We plant loads of trees and all sorts of... And lots of friends, I imagine, who, who come uh, and join. Uh, yeah. Yes, of course. And then, of course, for two years, there was nobody came through mm. the front door, you know. And uh, that wasn't... I, I put my hand up. I didn't like the, the, the lockdown at all. I got into serious stress mode. So Clive and I were going for a walk one day and he had seen it coming and he just said to me, talk. And I cried. So I was just so stressed out over the whole thing from my mother in the nursing home to the future, to life, to health, to the unknown. So then I said, okay, this is not a good thing. So I went to the GP and I just explained to uh, Dr. Michael and he put me on an antacid pill. And I think it was the best placebo I ever got. So by talking to Clive and talking to the GP, the stress left and I was fine after that. But um, so yeah, back to that whole rural aspect it's very rural it's very lovely but i yeah very happy out there i must say yeah right. 
Well, listen, to anybody who's been listening and to particularly, hopefully, lots of young people, because I know I'm hoping Limerick Pride will be sharing this podcast. Um, have a wonderful Pride. Um, look after yourselves and also make sure you do what Dan did, is to get involved and to spread the wealth of knowledge because there's so much here and... I hope Pride has been wonderful. Dan Lawless, thank you so much. Give my regards to Clive. He's been wonderful. And um, keep up the good work. Happy Pride, everybody. And as I said, live it. You've been listening to the Posterity Podcast with me, Nigel Dugdale. Produced by the Limerick Post in association with Limerick City Community Radio. Theme tune composed by David Blake and performed by the Brad Pitt Light Orchestra. If you want to get in touch with me or suggest any future guests, you can contact me directly on Twitter at Limerick City Biz or you can contact the Limerick Post at Limerick Post. Limerick Post.